Welcome everybody to another edition of the Independent Teacher Podcast with me, your host, Susan Pallister. And in today's show, I am joined by Johnny Noakes, the Director of Teaching and Learning at Eton College. Welcome, Johnny, to today's podcast. I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your role at Eton, as well as some of the most recent teaching and learning research that Eton College has produced. Morning, Susan, and thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, of course. Um, I'm primarily an English language and literature teacher at Eton, uh, but I'm also the director of teaching and learning. And that means that I put a real focus on how teachers teach, how pupils learn, and also on the growing evidence base around uh, what makes excellent teaching and learning. So I work alongside my colleagues to help them become even better than they currently are. And in addition, I run a centre for innovation and research in learning called the Tony Little Centre where we translate and synthesize research by others. And we also conduct our own small scale research projects. Um, and recently, well, we've been focusing on aspects of so-called character education, you know, those social emotional skills and yeah. dispositions that are so important for pupils' happiness and success, mm-hmm. not just at school, but in life later as well. Um, and all our reports, by the way, are published on the school's website, they're free access. We, we did an interesting study recently on happiness at Eton, uh, where we were quite surprised, actually. We were looking for one thing and found another, which was that um, the boys get steadily happier during the time at school, which wow. bucks trends internationally for teenagers' mental health. That was a, a really interesting finding. So we then dug into what the causes of that were. Um, and more recently, we focused on how to teach resilience and academic resilience across a group of schools, both state and independent. And right now, we're beginning to focus on remote learning um, because mm-hmm. we're expanding the range of courses we teach to our state schools, and we're also hoping to build three new sixth forms in the Midlands and the North. Um, and we'll be developing courses through our digital arm, EastNex. Yeah, that's really interesting, this idea about digital learning. My last um, episode actually was all uh, about digital learning in the university system and how the universities are really expanding and developing that element. I thought it was interesting how schools could easily get left behind, particularly schools in the in the state s- system. So that's that's really interesting. Um, What I also wanted to talk to you about today was rethinking assessment. So I wonder if you could just talk to me about the organisation called Rethinking Assessment and how you became involved. Yeah, Rethinking Assessment um, was launched about a year ago by a cross-sector group of state and independent school teachers and head teachers and other key figures, as well as um, academics, business people, various stakeholders. And the reason why it was created was to to make a case for why we think we need to rethink um, how and when we assess pupils, especially in the UK, and to suggest workable alternatives to our our present systems. We're particularly focused on GCSEs actually at the moment, um, Mm. which as you know, were introduced some 30 years ago when Kenneth Baker was education secretary. And we think they're no longer fit for purpose. In fact, Lord Baker is a member of the group and he's arguing the same thing. Um, And how did I get involved? Well, I became involved because the centre that I run is interested in all forms of innovation. And part of the the problem with our present system of public examinations is that it exerts a kind of stranglehold on schools. Um, You know, it determines what we teach, when we teach it, how we teach it, and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's a massive block to innovation. And it's also a massive block to asking bigger questions um, about what we're teaching children for and what the proper place of assessment is in our wider purposes. Um, so we were, we're already, you know, the centre I run is already very interested in this kind of 
innovative thinking. And it just so happens that I've done quite a lot of work with Peter Hyman, um, who's founder of School 21, and Professor Bill Lucas, who directs the Centre for Real World Learning at Winchester, and they're both co-founders of the movement. Um, so I was delighted to be able to, to join. Excellent. And from all the work that you've been doing then, what, what are the main problems with assessment in UK schools? Well, the first thing to say is that there are very good reasons why we've ended up with the system we currently have. Um, you know, it aims to give a reliable way of assessing people's knowledge and understanding in a way that's standardised um, so that they can then progress on to the next stage of their education or their lives with a, a qualification that has real validity. So that's what, that's what it sets out to do. And those are all fine things. Um, the problems really lie in the, in the way that it doesn't actually fulfil those aims very well. So, you know, on the issue of reliability, um, actually the reliability of public exams is, is a, a comforting illusion, I would call it. <laughs> um, you know, and Ofcore's own research in 2018 showed that around 50% of grades may have been wrongly awarded in some subjects. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was a head of department, I had a, a yearly battle with awarding bodies over unreliable marking. I mean, in some cases, just unbelievably unreliable. Every year, we had at least one whole cohort remark with marks and grades changing for scores of pupils. Um, and by the way, that's a process that's time consuming and costly, and it's far more likely to be pursued by independent schools mm. than by state schools. So there's, there's another issue. Um, the second main problem I'd say is that because exam grades are the main form of accountability for schools, it's inevitable that schools will teach to the test and the curriculum can become really impoverished by that process, by that focus. Um, and that's especially a problem for pupils who may not make the pass mark. So some schools will pull them out of other activities and give them extra teaching just to get them over that line. And that incidentally, especially impacts on the education of the less advantaged again. Mm. Um, and, and given how important wider skills are, you know, we're talking about skills like self-leadership or creative thinking and problem solving, teamwork or, or resilience. Given how important all those skills are, it seems to me it's quite wrong that they're not only ignored in our assessment process, but they're even squeezed out um, by this process of giving exam passing top priority in some schools. So that's the second problem. Um, a third problem uh, is the level of stress and anxiety mm. that, that uh, exams can cause. Um, you know, I, I believe some stress, some anxiety aren't necessarily a bad thing and we can teach pupils how to cope with them. Life after all will give them plenty of that when they, when they grow up. But is it really necessary to get 16 year olds to sit up to 30 high stakes exams in, in a few weeks? Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you're aware that there are very high rates of mental and emotional disorders among teenagers. In fact, you know, England's best source of data on trends in mental health among children found that nearly 17% of uh, 17 to 90 year olds experience a mental disorder. This was in 2017. And that's got worse during COVID. Mm. And among teenagers, rates of depression and anxiety have doubled in 30 years. So this is not a small issue for us to be looking at. And, you know, the wisdom of a highly stressful way of assessing pupils looks really questionable in that context. Mm -hmm. And then I would also add, this is not a comprehensive list of things that are wrong, but another major problem I would say is, is a huge waste of taxpayers' money. About £170 million a year are spent on public examinations in schools. Mm -hmm. Right. So what would you like? to put in its place then? What would you like to change? Well, um, I would love to see a variety of ways of assessing pupils, um, including, for instance, mastery learning, where you work towards mastery in your own time. 
um, or more use of extended, extended project qualification, for instance, greater choice in the pathways that are open to people so they can play to their strengths, much more value given to the sorts of wider skills and life achievements um, that we know are important in people's lives and, and ways of catching those achievements. Um, more discussion actually between schools, universities and employers about what kinds of skills they actually want mm. uh, alongside academic learning. I, I'm not for a moment saying academic learning isn't important, it's hugely important, but so are other things. Um, I'd also like to see the pass fail at 16 replaced with some kind of ongoing formative assessment. Right. Yeah. People are continually improving rather than being told at that point, well, actually, frankly, you know, you're, you're, you're part of the third, which has now failed. Mm. And I'd really like to see school accountability metrics separated from these, these student grades. Mm. Because, you know, that, that is a, a really unhelpful um, lever, if you like, that pushes schools towards focusing on um, pushing pupils through exams. So are you looking at more the North American model where they do continuous assessment over the course of a student's life in school? That's one possibility, although that doesn't have, you know, that's not without its own uh, dangers and risks. And some people will say far better to have a, a single terminal assessment than continual assessment because but, you know, the stress is then um, pretty much continual. Mm. Um, so, um, but, uh, you know, I think if you accept that all forms of assessment, if they're going to matter at all, they're going to bring a certain amount of stress. Mm. I think, um, you know, there, there are ways, the American system is one, there are ways you can address that. It's, it's partly about making sure that pupils take assessments when they're ready to take them. Mm. You know, a, music, a musician, a pupil who's, who's studying a musical instrument doesn't take grade eight because they reach the age at which you have to take grade eight. They take grade eight when they're ready to take it. Yeah. Now that's really hard to organize for huge numbers of pupils in an academic environment, but we can certainly go further towards that kind of mastery um, assessment. So something like that, yes. So everyone that I have spoken to, sort of ex-heads, in particular, they all want to change, certainly the GCSE system. Um, existing teachers, maybe not. So I just wonder, from your work that you've been doing, what are the main obstacles to bringing about what would, in a way, be quite a radical reform of the examination system? Yes, it would. It would. And people, understandably, uh, who are stakeholders in education, have a huge investment already in the current system. I'm not just talking about you know, vested financial interests. Clearly, the current system is big business for some people. But I'm talking about people who have teachers who have, have learned how to teach pupils through the current system and do it really well. Um, and of course, people will resist change uh, if it looks as if that expertise that they've acquired and something they know how to do well is going to become redundant. And I, I completely understand that. There's also a belief that, okay, exams may not be perfect, but then there's no other better system. So let's at least stick with something that we know how to do, which is as good as we're likely to be able to get. I don't agree with that. Um, there's a, a suspicion that alternatives will be less rigorous. Um, you know, if you, if you talk about the problems with standardized testing, some people will immediately say, well, if you don't have standardized testing, you're talking about something that is really unreliable in, in um, gauging how people's compare. So there's that as well. And actually just the gravitational pull of habit. You know, we know what we know. We know what we, we're used to. And, um, and human beings tend to stick with that. I would also say, uh, you know, it's partly because if you're very focused on getting pupils through exams, it's easy to lose sight of what education is for more generally. I'm not for a moment suggesting that teachers don't want to know what education is for. But I'm suggesting that from day to day, our focus 
may not be on those big questions of what we're trying to achieve here because we're so focused on the process of preparing people for exams. Um, and for all these reasons, education is famously resistant to change. How do you persuade parents that it's not about uh, acquiring as many GCSEs at grade nine or as many A-levels at A-star? How do you win over the parents? That's a really difficult one. And my, my observation about that is that the parents tend to have a kind of split vision, actually. If you say to, to parents, what would you like your child to, to, um, to learn while he or she is at school, um, you know, what matters most in their learning, they're likely to tell you things like, well, I really want my child to be happy, to be fulfilled, to discover what they're good at. Um, I want them to learn to connect with other people and so on. So they'll talk about all these broader things. Um, very rarely will they say, I want my child to get top grades um, in all of their exams as their, most, as their most important criterion. But, and it's a big but, because the grades are the gateway to the next stage, mm. and because all parents understandably want their children to have the best life chances they can, actually, when it comes to what are we going to prioritise here, um, exams and the academic learning become the top priority. So if you were, for instance, to say to parents, not just what do you most value, but would you be prepared for the school to spend less time on your child's academic learning with the possibility they may get lower grades if we were to put much more focus on the things you say you think are important. I think that's a tougher question for them to, to give a yes to. Mm. If you're looking to reform um, examinations age 16, where do A-levels and the IB fit in? Um, well, I, I, the way we're thinking about it on the Rethinking Assessment Group is that GCSEs are a good place to start. Mm. Um, but the, the sort of thinking and the sorts of questions we're asking about GCSEs could and really should be extended to A-level and the IB. Um, I, you know, it, because at the moment um, pupils uh, stay on in education or some form of training after 16, um, the need for GCSEs as a, as a terminal exam um, is greatly reduced. That's not to say there's no need because of course lots of pupils move from one kind of school to a college or whatever at that age. Um, so you know, there may well still be a need um, for some kind of assessment at 16. But the point is that GCSEs in many ways uh, were introduced for reasons that are now redundant. That's not true of A-levels and, and the IB. But if we were to develop, as we hope to do, um, a range of ways of measuring pupils' progress um, that uh, captures um, a broader range of skills um, and uh, is also less stressful um, and more accurate as well, Mm -hmm. than the current system, then I think you could ask the question, how can we extend those same methodologies to 18 year olds? Right. Next question then, do you think the pandemic has been a catalyst for change? Firstly, in terms of assessment. Well, that absolutely has been a catalyst for calls for change. Uh, whether it will lead actually to changes is an interesting question. Uh, and, and the main reason why the um, pandemic has been a catalyst for that, for calls for change, is because the system uh, of assessment that previously looked impregnable, basically monolithic, mm. you know, exams have become, if you like, the determining factor that determine much of what schools do. It looked, it looked unbreakable. Actually, the pandemic broke it. Mm. Um, and we were forced into this process of centre assess grades and teacher assess grades this year. Actually, what's interesting about that is that teacher assessed grades were part of GCSEs when they were first introduced. Mm. And I can remember teaching GCSE English and liter English literature courses that were actually 100% assessed by the centre. But that was dropped, that process was dropped because there were questions about the reliability 
of um, these sorts of teacher assess grades. And that question has been raised again, now that in, in the pandemic, we've had school um, center assessed and teacher assessed grades. Um, so uh, but yes, there have been questions raised it, now that the system um, has had to be like to be broken and we've had to find new ways, isn't this at the right moment to be asking whether we can produce a better system mm -hmm. than the one we've had before? So rather than just going back to business as usual as fast as possible, which plenty of teachers want to do, by the way, because the last couple of years have put a huge burden on schools and they've actually slowed down people's learning in some ways. So people want to get back to business as they, as they used to, and I understand that. But I think we, we, what we're asking for a rethinking assessment is we don't lose the moment to say, okay, even if in the short term, we've got to go back to business as usual, let's consider now in the longer term, what kind of change we could, we could bring about. So um, that's, that's one area um, in which the pandemic has definitely been a catalyst for change and it's, it's often an opportunity for change, put it that way. Yeah, and what about the way schools deliver their curriculum? Has it changed anything in that area? Absolutely it has. Um, because clearly the closing of schools and the enforced pupil absences led to schools doing remote teaching. Um, and those that had the resources put all their teaching online. And that's quite a challenge because it's not just a question of getting everyone onto a Zoom call or something similar. It raises all kinds of pedagogical questions about how do you engage pupils who um, are not sitting in the same room as you or even as each other? How do you use the opportunities that online teaching presents, you know, breakout rooms and collaborative spaces and apps like Quizlet and Nearpod and so on. So there's all of those pedagogical questions um, that schools were faced with. And, and then after that, we faced the extra challenge of a period in which schools had reopened, but some pupils were at home. So for instance, at Eton, what that meant was we had a hybrid model where you would be teaching a live class in your own classroom, but a number of boys would be joining the class online. So then you had a question of how do you include them and how do you make sure that they can see what you're showing the rest of the class and so on. Um, so, um, and actually at Eton, we'd already been introducing iPads as a teaching and learning tool across the whole school. And we were training our teachers and having used them when the, when the pandemic hit. And what was interesting was that awful though the pandemic was, it did have the benefit that suddenly everyone had to skill themselves up in remote mm -hmm. online teaching very quickly. So we effectively did two years CPD in two months. <laughs> and what's interesting is now that we are back in schools, um, and you know, loving the fact that we're back in, in classrooms and, and you know, able to relate to people you know, live and so on um, as, uh, in the same room. I and mean, that's, that's fantastic to have those relationships back. We are also asking, well, what do we not want to lose from this whole experience? What, what, do, we, what do we gain from online teaching learning that actually would be worth keeping? We can mark in, in um, much more varied ways now um, than we were able to do when we're doing long paper. So there are, there are some ways in which, um, in certain ways in which uh, putting teaching and learning online really made things more efficient um, and opened up new possibilities. And it would be a shame to lose those. Do you think that there's a danger that there's going to be this growing gap between what the independent sector can offer students and what the maintained sector can offer? I'm thinking particularly about things like digital poverty. Yes, there is. Clearly there is. Mm. So yes, absolutely. Um, and then there's also the expertise that teachers need to acquire um, in order to, to do this properly. Uh, you know, if, if, for instance, put it this way, when we were trying to skill up our teachers at Eton in um, remote teaching and learning, we didn't just run a number of uh, sessions in CPD for the whole staff body. What, what we actually did was we employed an academic technologist who's a, a teacher with IT expertise 
who comes at the whole question of um, uses of IT from a pedagogical point of view. So what are you trying to achieve here as a teacher and how can the IT help you, which is the, the right way to do it, we think. Um, and this academic technologist works one-to-one -one with teachers. Now that was a fantastically successful form of CPD because every teacher who was in a different place and had different questions and different needs had those met. But that's a really expensive model. And you know, state schools just can't afford to do that. So yes, the, the short answer is I'm afraid this will open up the gap. Um, having said that, there are ways in which independent schools can share their resources and some of what they're doing with the state sector. And increasingly, they're willing, willing to do that for free. And I think that's what I'd like to ask you about now. I mean, what work does Eton College actually do with schools in the maintained sector? We do quite a lot and an increasing amount. Um, we're part of a local partnership called the Thames Valley Learning Partnership. We co-founded the London Academy of Excellence um, several years ago now in the East End of London. And we've also, we're the sole sponsors for Hollyport, which is a state boarding school close to Eton. We've also just launched a project which aims to build three new sixth forms um, in northern cities, um, uh, all of which we will be the sole educational sponsor for together with Star Academies. So by sole, I mean the sole independent school. Um, so we do, we do quite a lot and we have other state school partners as well, um, such as Inter University and Young Leaders Academy and so on. And, and actually we're really interested now in the ways in which we can use our digital expertise um, to work with these, with these schools. Um, so, for example, we've for several years now had a digital arm called EtonX, which mm -hmm. produced uh, future skills courses. So we're talking about, you know, courses in character and life skills, such as resilience or public speaking. Um, there are some academic skills like essay writing, um, university application skills, that sort of thing. And then when the pandemic hit, we made um, a suite of these freely available to state schools, which had very good take up. And in, and in fact, in September of last year, we made all of the courses free to state mm -hmm. schools. Um, over a thousand schools requested access, over 50,000 pupils enrolled. Um, interesting to look at what they enrolled in, by far the most popular course was a course in resilience, perhaps not surprisingly. <laughs> job interview skills were very popular as well. Sorry, what was that, Johnny? Job interview skills. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, so this, we think this is, you know, one of the biggest cross-sector partnerships um, that has taken place between the independent sector and the state sector, and, and it's IT that has enabled it. Mm. So, that's, so that's one example. Um, we actually do also produce bespoke uh, courses for our partner schools, um, you know, diploma programs and, and uh, courses in uh, personal statement writing and, and so on, which we offer to particularly the London Academy of Excellence and to Hollyport at particular points in their curriculum. Um, then the centre that I run has created CPD courses for, for teachers in evidence-informed approaches to education and character education. Um, which are also freely available on the next uh, platform. Um, and uh, we have also uh, run a, a summer school um, with an Ethernex component. Uh, we've, in fact, recently revamped our whole Eaton virtual platform mm -hmm. because we're now interested in, in developing courses, enrichment courses, essentially, that Eaton teachers will teach to pupils in the sixth forms, which we hope to be opening in, in the coming years. Would that be free? The state schools. Yes, all of all of these are free. Um, none, none of it. Interestingly, Eatonex started as um, a, 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 you know a platform where we were selling courses overseas, actually. So it was a way of generating revenue. But we changed direction completely during the pandemic. 
Mm. Uh, and we don't we don't look now to create core, to create any revenue from sharing these courses with state schools. We're just we're just sharing them. Do you share them with other independent schools for free? We share them if they pay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> All I right. I don't even call that sharing or selling. Selling aspect. <laughs> right. Okay. Um. Okay. Crystal ball gazing time. Looking ahead, the next five, ten years. What do you think will change in terms of the way we assess pupils in our schools? I think there will be change because I think there is a groundswell of opinion that there needs to be. Um, there is a risk that we will just, you know, we're so, we're so busy catching up over the coming months and then years that we will just go back to, to things as they were before. But there are plenty of people saying, look, things as they were before weren't great for all kinds of reasons. So let's not waste this opportunity um, that this crisis has brought about. Um, so what, what sort of things do I think will happen? I think it's quite likely we'll begin to see multimodal methods of assessment, not just terminal exams. I think it's quite likely that those um, assessments will recognize not just a narrow band of cognitive abilities, important that they are, but also, as we were talking about before, people's life achievements or the wider skills that children need to, to succeed. Um, I think it's possible that exams will become less focused on summative assessment and more on their formative development. I think we, we really need assessment that allows pupils greater choice to play to their strengths. Um, I think that's crucial. I think it's unfair on pupils for whom um, the academic, uh, um, academic studies are not their strengths, but they have great strengths. It's really unfair that this, you know, they're only tested and assessed um, on, those, on those strengths. Um, and as I've mentioned before, I, I would like to see, and I think it's quite possible we will see, schools held accountable for the quality and range of the education they offer beyond the narrow metrics um, of exam results, although there will always be one factor that's in there. So I think that you know, there's a real possibility we will see all those kinds of changes happening over the coming years, partly because um, a lot of teachers um, and a lot of thought leaders and a lot of people who have influence and have a real interest in, and you know, are stakeholders in education, they want these changes to happen. Here, mm -hmm. here. <laughs> thank you Johnny that's really good um thank you ever so much for joining me today on the independent teacher podcast lots of things to think about uh so I think our listeners will really enjoy this particular episode thank you thank you it's been a real pleasure thank you so thank you everyone for joining me in today's edition of the Independent Teacher Podcast with me, Susan Pallister, and my very special guest on today's show, the Director of Teaching and Learning at Eton College, Johnny Noakes. Don't forget to tune in to future editions of the Independent Teacher Podcast.